You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The next episode of the Redacted History Podcast will be on the late great, honorable Coretta Scott King. And that episode will be dropping next week. But in the meantime, in between time, I compiled all of our work from the Redacted History Podcast in 2023 on Martin Luther King Jr. So our new listeners won't have to pile back through all of the episodes to get some context. And our old listeners will get a refreshment. This episode on Coretta Scott King will focus on her life, her legacy, and her point of view as everything was happening to and around the King family during the civil rights movement and when her husband was assassinated. I don't feel like people talk enough about who Coretta Scott King was other than the wife of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., So I thought it fitting that the first episode of Black History Month of the Redacted History Podcast be about Coretta Scott King. As always, leave a rating, a review, subscribe, sit back and stay a while. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly, somewhere I read of the freedom of speech somewhere i read of the freedom of press somewhere i read that the greatness of america is the right to protest far right between the height of his popularity and his assassination in april of 1968 j edgar hoover and the fbi did everything that they could to discredit and take down Martin Luther King Jr. They followed, wiretapped, threatened, bugged, and blackmailed him in a relentless campaign to dethrone him as the head of the civil rights movement. I'm Andre, and this is the Redacted History Podcast. You can go to the FBI's website right now and find an entire vault of FBI records, declassified, memorandums, notes, quotes, emails. Well, there was an email, but typewriter notes. For the public to see, all of this is public information. 200 plus pages worth of the FBI's illegal undertakings as it pertains to Martin Luther King Jr. Throughout the 1950s and most notably the 1960s, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI did as much as they could to make life absolutely miserable for Martin Luther King. The FBI was most alarmed about King because of the success that he had and his ability to galvanize people toward his cause and to his side. Keep in mind, the things that Martin Luther King were doing at the time were admirable, at least to me and anybody else with any kind of positive moral compass. We are all familiar with the famous speeches, the I have a dream speech and the I've been to the mountaintop speech. We're familiar with the Montgomery bus boycott and his influence on the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act as well. 
But Martin Luther King also won a Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. He became the youngest person to do so at age 35. He launched a poor people's campaign, demanding $12 billion in economic aid and guaranteeing employment to those able to work and ending housing discrimination, among many, many, many other things. And you could look at all of these great things that he was a part of and wonder how someone could possibly have it out for this man. A man who preached that violence itself is self-defeating and he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And the reasoning that they were after him is simple, but not so simple at the same time. J. Edgar Hoover was the fifth director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or the FBI, and he remained in this position until he died in 1972. Here's a quote from him. We should prevent the rise of a messiah who could unify and electrify the militant black nationalist movement. Malcolm X might have been a messiah. Martin Luther King, Stokely Carmichael, and Elijah Muhammad all aspire to this position. King could be a very real contender for this position should he abandon his supposed obedience to white liberal doctrines. That was a direct quote from J. Edgar Hoover, the leader of the United States, the leader of the United States' foremost domestic law enforcement agency, the FBI. What Hoover might best be known for is COINTELPRO, or counterintelligence program. COINTELPRO was a secret, not so secret, FBI program that ran from 1956 to 1971. The program aimed to disrupt and neutralize political organizations deemed to be a threat to national security. This included groups such as the Communist Party USA, the Black Panther Party, and the American Indian Movement. The tactics used by COINTELPRO included surveillance, infiltration, propaganda, and disruption. The FBI used wiretapping, mail opening, and other forms of covert surveillance to gather information on political groups and individuals. They also use infiltrators to disrupt the activities of these groups by sowing mistrust and causing internal conflicts. In addition to these tactics, the FBI also used propaganda to discredit and disrupt political organizations. This included planning false stories in the media, leaking false information to journalists, and creating fake documents to create the appearance of criminal activity by the targeted group. The COINTELPRO program was exposed in 1971 by a group of activists who broke into an FBI office in Pennsylvania and stole documents detailing the program's activities. These documents were later leaked to the press, causing a public outcry and leading to significant changes in FBI practices. The program has been widely criticized for violating the civil rights of individuals and groups targeted by the FBI. Many activists and organizations were harassed, wrongly arrested, and even killed as a result of the program. The FBI's actions were deemed illegal and unethical by the U.S. Congress and the American public, leading to reforms in the FBI's domestic intelligence gathering. In summation, COINTELPRO was just a secret FBI program that aimed to disrupt political organizations that they deemed to be a threat to national security. 
The program, like I said, was exposed in 1971 and has been criticized for violating civil and human rights. The FBI's real push and hurried gravitation towards Martin Luther King started in 1961. One of the FBI's main concerns with King was they had a reason to believe that he was being heavily influenced by the Communist Party and communism as a whole. This began with King's relationship with a white man named Staniel Levison. Levison was an American businessman and lawyer who became a close friend and advisor to King, most notably in the late 50s, and remained in contact until King's assassination. Levison served as a ghostwriter for King, an active fundraiser, and had denounced all ties to the Communist Party. Hoover went on record to condemn the Communist Party whenever he could. He stated that they were stronger than the Nazis ever were and were seeking to destroy America. Now, this all sounds very stupid, I know. But between 1962 and 1963, Director Hoover went back and forth in communication with the then Attorney General at the time, Robert Kennedy, who was also John F. Kennedy's brother. In essence, the FBI was basically saying, hey, we think this MLK guy, you know, the black guy leading the civil rights movement and advocating for equal rights and opportunity for all. Yeah, him. We think that he is a communist. This originally didn't go over well with Attorney General Kennedy because he, along with his brother, were originally advocates for MLK. And it was no secret that JFK was a known supporter for civil rights and integration. Uh, John F. Kennedy actually talked to Martin Luther King Jr. face to face one on one and told him, hey, we think you should step back from these communist people. But MLK was like, yo, I'm not I, I don't know any communists. However, all it took was for the FBI to make a claim that King was being advised by a couple of communists for Robert Kennedy to oblige. This came to a head in the summer of 1963 when Robert Kennedy, the attorney general, recommended that surveillance be placed on King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which is an African-American nonprofit organization that Martin Luther King Jr. was the first president of, and he served in that position until he was killed. The wiretapping of King quickly turned into using microphones to hear all of his conversations. They would also book hotel rooms down the hall or above or below King's rooms and listen in on all of his conversations. The FBI never really made their true intentions known to the attorney general, which is why he probably approved it. The entire belief was that communism was influencing the civil rights movement, and that claim makes zero sense. Hoover was quoted saying the Negro situation in this country has been fully exploited and continuously by communists on a national scale. So to create unrest, dissension and confusion in the minds of the American people. This was a quote he had said in 1958. Attorney General Kennedy eventually took back his approval for the surveillance, but eventually gave in again and allowed it. He also allowed wiretaps on the home of Stanley Levinson. Unbeknownst to him, though, Hoover and the FBI launched illegal counterintelligence programs towards King as well. It was an all-out attack. Hoover was on record in the summer of 1963 stating in a memo to his deputy director that they had long thought Fidel Castro could possibly be under communist influence, but they didn't take enough action, and now was basically their chance to right their wrongs and prevent the rise of communism by way of the African-American community and the civil rights movement. Something else happened in the summer of 1963. Martin Luther King gave his famous and legendary I Have a Dream speech on August 28th. In this speech, 
King called for an end to racism and equal rights in America. The speech was delivered to over 250,000 supporters on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. during the March on Washington. Merely days after the speech, the FBI described King as the most dangerous and effective Negro leader in the country, and he should be neutralized. Over the course of this year, King was advised over and over again by government officials to distance himself from folks in his circle who they claimed to be communists. King denied that there were any communist influences in his circle and went on record to say, It is amazing to me that more black people don't turn towards communism, considering our plight. It is amazing that in spite of our long night of oppression and discrimination, that the Negro has remained loyal to America. Folks also advised MLK to not get into public altercations or back and forth with Hoover, but that didn't really stop him from speaking what was on his mind. And in November of 1964, Hoover called King the most notorious liar in the country. King and Hoover actually had a sit-down meeting face-to-face one time on December 1st, 1964. Hoover went on record in an internal memo afterwards saying that he basically used the meeting as a deflection and just used it to explain the organization's functions to King and to talk at King. King said afterwards that Hoover acted in an amiable way and that he was very kind. This was all clearly a facade. Basically, King also used this meeting to apologize for any remarks that he had made that offended the Bureau and praised the work of the FBI. (laughs) Okay. Perhaps the most embarrassing and unforgiving attempt at discrediting Martin Luther King Jr. came in 1964. The FBI had already been keeping a close eye on King, surveilling his whereabouts, bugging his house, his hotel rooms, and following him everywhere he went. Now, these measures found no evidence of King conspiring with communist powers, but they did find evidence of extramarital affairs King was having, which really wasn't a gotcha. It was more of an already open secret. Hoover and the FBI then began to peddle evidence of these extramarital relationships to the press, and to their shock and dismay, these stories went nowhere. In fact, King was becoming even bigger and even more loved by people. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act was passed, and King won the Nobel Peace Prize. In November of 1964, the FBI sent a letter to King, which came to be known as the Suicide Letter. The letter or the note is single-spaced and tightly written on one piece of paper. It was clearly meant to mock King. You are a colossal fraud and an evil, vicious one at that. It described his lovers as evil playmates, all engaged in dirt, filth, evil, and moronic talk. It concludes with a deadline of 34 days before your filthy, abnormal, fraudulent self is bared to the nation. There is only one thing left for you to do. The author warned that vaguely in the final paragraph. You know what it is. The letter also says you're done. And many folks interpret this letter as urging King to kill himself or be killed. And of course, the FBI has denied this, but do they really deserve the benefit of the doubt? Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Well, I don't know what will happen now. 
We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The ironic thing about the rivalry between Martin Luther King Jr. and J. Edgar Hoover is that Hoover's main goal was to discredit King and soil his reputation, which never really happened. And it was Hoover's reputation that is soiled today in modern times. The attempts by the FBI to discredit King and his family continued even after his death. Reports state that Hoover actually okayed a plan to leak a false story to the press that Coretta Scott King wanted to peddle conspiracy theories on King's death to the press to keep monetary donations coming into the family. This didn't include the separate efforts to discredit and embarrass Coretta Scott King herself by looking into her travels and stalking her and the people she kept close relationships with. There was also another report from the Senate Select Committee into investigations concerning post-assassination efforts to make MLK Day a national holiday. The FBI actually tried to motion against it to Congress, citing King's personal background. An investigation into the FBI surveillance actually deemed that the surveillance should have basically been stopped in its tracks in 1963 after they learned that King had no real ties or influence concerning the Communist Party. It turned from we want to stop communism to a smear campaign. The investigation says the fact that surveillance continued in a COINTELPRO fashion was unwarranted. It was a violation and by definition felonious. There probably should have been some FBI guys in handcuffs, starting with Mr. J. Edgar Hoover. If you look at popular media over the years, movies, TVs, etc., the FBI is always championed as the heroes. And I think this story is just one of many that tells us that that isn't the case at all. Preserving Martin Luther King's true legacy is as important today than it ever was. We are in a place in our country where the facts and legacy of the plight of marginalized people in America is being ignored more than ever. African-American studies was just banned from being taught in public schools in Florida this week. You see the FBI Twitter account praising MLK on MLK Day and other political figures championing his legacy, but the next day fighting for what he stood against. It's all pretty unserious and insidious if you ask me. So, it's important that these true stories be told and never die. And never forget, at the time of his death and height of his popularity, Martin Luther King Jr. was one of the most hated men in America. 
Researchers estimate that the United States government spent over $100 million destroying or destabilizing black, indigenous, and left-wing movements through efforts such as COINTELPRO. These efforts were rooted in racism and fear. Fear that a messiah would rise out of the concrete and lead the underserved to the promised land. And messiahs did rise. Generational leaders such as Malcolm X, Huey P. Newton, Fred Hampton, and some would say the plan worked because a messiah never rose again. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We all know what happened to Martin Luther King Jr. on that fateful April evening in Memphis, Tennessee, 1968. At 6.05 p.m., Martin Luther King was standing on the second floor balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, where he and his associates were staying. And this was a motel that he and his associates had frequented. King's last words on the balcony before he was shot were spoken to musician Ben Branch, who was scheduled to perform that night at an event King was attending. He said, Ben, make sure you play Take My Hand, Precious Lord in the meeting tonight. Play it real pretty. And then... Martin Luther King Jr. was rushed to room one of the St. Joseph's Hospital emergency room. He was unconscious breathing irregularly, and clinging on for dear life. Surgeons dug into his body and found that the bullet path had done so much damage that if he were to survive, Martin Luther King would have been a quadriplegic. But none of that mattered. He was showing zero signs of life and was declared dead at 7.05 p.m. at the age of 39. Here is an excerpt from his autopsy report. Quote, the entrance wound was through the right mandible, shattering it on entry. The bullet traveled through the right neck and then entered the right supraclavicular fossa. It entered the external jugular vein, vertebral artery, and subclavian artery on the right before it crossed through the right pleural space. It then crossed the midline, transecting the spinal cord at the junction of the cervical and thoracic cord. After passing through the cord, it lodged into the back near the left scapula. Unquote. One bullet did a lot of damage. In hindsight, there is a slight concern about the hospital that King was brought to. St. Joseph's was the closest hospital to the Lorraine Motel. However, St. Joseph's was a small 400-bed hospital that didn't have extensive resources for trauma victims. John Gaston Hospital, on the other hand, was an experienced trauma hospital and would have taken a few more minutes to get to. It makes you wonder, would MLK have survived? But this is not a conspiracy theory episode, because the chances of survival would have still been a very low chance since we are dealing with artery and spinal cord damage. But let's rewind. 
Why was Martin Luther King even in Memphis in the first place? During the year of 1968, King had many transgressions in the city of Memphis. Martin Luther King was drawn to Memphis as his next project in the ongoing fight for civil rights after watching 1,300 black sanitation workers march for better working conditions and higher pay in February of 1968. The sanitation workers of Memphis were fed up. They were expected to work the longest days doing one of society's most necessary but underappreciated jobs for meager wages, rain, shine, sleet, or snow. The city was only paying the workers 65 cents an hour, and this left many workers having to resort to welfare programs and food stamps. The need to strike gained traction and momentum when a couple of weeks before the strike, two workers named E. Cole Cole and Robert Walker were out working in the middle of a rainstorm and took shelter in the back of their truck. The truck ended up malfunctioning, causing the two men to be crushed to death. In addition to fair wages, the workers had been campaigning the city for better functioning equipment. These people were out here risking their lives and sanity on a daily basis. This was the least that they could do. Then to add the ultimate insult to injury, the city refused to offer any kind of compensation to the families of the deceased workers. So we have a city that refuses to adequately pay some of its most important workers. And when these workers die on the job, they refuse to admit fault and will turn a blind eye. Sounds protest worthy to me. This was newer territory for Martin Luther King. See, up until this point, the civil rights movement had been focusing mainly on racial equity issues. But realizing the importance and intersectionality of these issues, they chose to take on the challenge and take action. The protest started with several hundred people participating in a peaceful sit-in. The peacefulness of this protest ended when police decided to tear gas the protesters. Martin Luther King was then asked by Reverend James Lawson to come and assist with the efforts, which King gladly obliged, citing the fact that he was in the midst of building his Poor People's Campaign, a movement he was building to advocate for America's marginalized. On March 18, 1968, Martin Luther King gave a speech titled, All Labor Has Dignity, to a crowd of over 25,000 people. And the words he spoke in this magnificently worded and poignant speech resonate with a lot of the labor debates that we have today in 2023. He said, quote, You are demanding that this city will respect the dignity of labor. So often we overlook the work and the significance of those who are not in professional jobs, of those who are not in the so-called big jobs. But let me say to you tonight that whenever you are engaged in work that serves humanity and is for the building of humanity, it has dignity and it has worth. One day, our society must come to see this. One day, our society will come to respect the sanitation worker if it is to survive. For the person who picks up our garbage in the final analysis is as significant as the physician. For if he doesn't do his job, diseases are rampant. All labor has dignity. Unquote. Now, that excerpt of that speech is very relevant to everything we're experiencing today in America when we're talking about labor shortages, increasing the minimum wage and things of that nature. 
Martin Luther King was way ahead of his time. King went on to speak on how the workers were crossing the intersection between civil rights, workers' rights, and human rights. He went on to encourage the workers to enforce a full-on labor stoppage if their demands were not met. And when his speech was over, he told the people that he would be back in Memphis at the end of the month of March to lead a mass march. On March 28th, he kept his promise and returned to Memphis to lead the workers' march with the help of Reverend Lawson. Things were going well with the peaceful protests until an outside group of agitators interfered and a black teenager ended up being killed, and many of King's critics and detractors blamed him for this death. It has been reported that in its final days, Martin Luther King Jr. was a very depressed man. The death threats came constantly and quickly. He was no stranger to people either threatening to or actually attempting to end his life. There was actually an assassination attempt on Martin Luther King a decade before he was killed. On September 20th, 1958, King was at a book signing at Bloomstein's department store in Harlem, New York, promoting his book, Strides Towards Freedom, which told the story of Rosa Parks' arrest and the subsequent boycott at 3.30 p.m. as he autographed a copy of his book, Isola Curry, a mentally unstable woman, stabbed him in the chest with a letter opener. King remained awake and alert, sitting in his chair, as several witnesses of the stabbing attended to him. There was discussion about pulling out the letter opener, but they decided to leave the blade in place until he arrived at the hospital, which was a move that ended up saving his life. They were able to remove the letter opener, and King remained in the hospital for a couple of weeks because he ended up contracting pneumonia as well. There was also a bomb threat against King's plane before he flew to Memphis for what would be the last time he would ever get on a plane. On April 3, 1968, Martin Luther King boarded Eastern Airlines Flight 381 from Atlanta to Memphis. A bomb threat had been called in against the flight, and the captain announced that the flight would be delayed. The entire baggage hold was searched and nothing was found. Just another regular day of travel for Martin Luther King. So between bomb threats, assassination attempts, constant surveillance by the FBI, it is safe to say that Martin Luther King Jr. knew that his time was coming. And this further was evidenced by the phrasing and the emotion and the wording that he used in the final speech that he ever gave titled, I've been to the mountaintop. At this point, King had a lot to offer to the people of Memphis who were looking for a reason to keep fighting. He had a lot of experience with fighting oppressive systems and fighting against the odds. He was experienced with the police dogs, the police brutality, the Birmingham church bombing, all the marches, all the speeches he had given. He was the perfect person to instill hope and wisdom to the fighting people of Memphis. He had the support of the workers, the clergy, and the students of the city, and a massive crowd of people showed out to hear him speak that night. The speech was given on April 3rd at the Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee, and it was largely regarding the Memphis sanitation strike, but King spoke on many, many things and alluded to some very troubling things as well. It was perhaps the most personal and emotional speech he had ever given. 
King called for unity, economic actions, boycotts, and nonviolent protest while challenging the United States to live up to its ideals. Outside was a torrential, stormy downpour, and the feeling of that storm echoed throughout King's words. He wove through his speech without any notes, and some could tell that he looked as if he was hurried, sleep-deprived, like something was amiss, something was off. He went on throughout the speech, casting referendums in doubt. He said unless the government moved swiftly to alleviate the poverty of African Americans, the nation was doomed. He implored the workers and people of Memphis to keep fighting, to make sure that the fight that they fought would set an example for the rest of the nation and the world. In the speech, he told the story of that 1958 stabbing, saying that had he had so much as sneezed with that letter opener inside of him, he would have died because it would have hit an artery. And he said that this was symbolic as he was not meant to die that day because he would not have been here for all that they accomplished in the civil rights movement. In this speech, he discusses the possibility of an untimely death and his own mortality. He was not ignorant to the whispers around him, the people plotting in the shadows to take him out of this world once and for all. The way he talked and looked that night, some would assume he was having an internal panic. He seemed to be coming to terms with his own death in real time in this speech. He used the metaphor of a mountaintop to symbolize the treacherous and steep climb that we as people had to make to get to true salvation, true happiness, and prosperity in this country. It was like him looking into a crystal ball and seeing his own future. This was Martin Luther King's final speech. He talked for a total of 43 minutes, and afterwards, he looked exhausted, as if he had gave his final bit of life for this speech. There were tears in his eyes. He collapsed in his chair near the podium, and the crowd gave a raucous standing ovation. A minister named Bill Kyle, who knew King and his oratory very well, said, I've never heard the intensity or the passion or the trauma in his voice and how he was delivering it, and he kept getting stronger and stronger. He would add that King seemed to be preparing for his death by purging publicly, purging the fear. He had to get rid of it. He had to let all that go. It's crazy to think that Martin Luther King Jr. was accepting his death on stage in front of everyone. And there was no way for us or the people watching to really know. A publicly private moment. After speeches, Martin Luther King would typically leave swiftly as to not be rushed by the crowd. But this night, he stuck around for a bit. He talked. He hugged. He just didn't want to leave. Until next time. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read 
of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. And so just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Yo, if you like this episode, you know what to do. Leave a rating and review on whatever platform you're listening to. We just hit 40,000 followers on Instagram and 1,000 subscribers on YouTube. Let's keep climbing. I truly appreciate all the support. Any social links can be found in the description below.